the San Francisco Experience podcast, brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 23, Episode 11, Weight Loss Drugs, Are They a Cure-All? Talking with pediatric endocrinologist Robert Lustig. Our guest today is Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at UC San Francisco, Rob Lustig, where he specializes in neuroendocrinology and childhood obesity. He joins us from his office in San Francisco. Hi, Rob, and welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Mr. Hurley. It's my pleasure. My pleasure, too, and please call me Jim. Rob, let's start from the beginning. You're a graduate of MIT, Cornell University Medical College, and UC Hastings Law School. He has over 158 publications to his credit, and several of his books, like Fat Chance, The Hacking of the American Mind, and Metabolical, are popular bestsellers. Rob, please take a few minutes to tell us about your research. Well, I was the head of the pediatric obesity program at UCSF for 17 years. I'm now retired, but in that time, I learned quite a bit about the obesity pandemic. Now, pretty much everyone thinks that obesity is about energy balance, calories in and calories out. Therefore, it's about two behaviors, gluttony and sloth. Therefore, if you're fat, it's your fault. Therefore, diet and exercise. Therefore, any calorie can be part of a balanced diet. Therefore, pretty much all foods are the same. Nothing could be further from the truth. And it was only through research that we basically realized that all of these mantras coming from the food industry were actually incorrect. The standard thought is if you eat it, you better burn it or you're going to store it. Well, the first law of thermodynamics works in the other direction too. If you're going to store it and you expect to burn it, then you're going to have to eat it. And now, those two behaviors, gluttony and sloth, that everybody associates with obesity are actually driven by a biochemical mechanism. And that biochemical mechanism has a name. It's the hormone insulin. So everyone knows insulin as the diabetes hormone. Diabetics take shots of insulin to lower their blood glucose. When they do that, when they lower their blood glucose with insulin, where does the glucose go? It left the blood, it went somewhere. It went to the fat for storage. Insulin is the energy storage hormone. Insulin shunts sugar to fat. Insulin makes fat more insulin, more fat. What we realized was when we got the insulin down, and there are multiple ways to do that, then patients lost weight and not until. And not only did they lose weight, they started exercising spontaneously. So we were able to fix the two problems of obesity, gluttony and sloth, by altering the biochemistry of the patient. Now, this was a revelation. A lot of people didn't believe it for a while. Mm-hmm. But now, within the medical community, this seemed, you know, is a uh, almost a hard and fast rule. And so... This is one of the reasons why you are now seeing so many food companies starting to engage in not just calorie reduction, 
which had been going on since 2012, 2013, but specifically sugar reduction. Mm -hmm. Because sugar is a primary driver of insulin. And so, you know, I take some credit, not all, but some credit for, you know, moving the field forward in this direction. And now we see lots of medicines on the market and also lots of changes mm -hmm. in food in the grocery store that reflect this alteration in thinking. Rob, before we discuss weight loss drugs, let's focus on your most recent book, Metabolical. You make the case that food is the only lever that we have to affect biochemical change to improve our health and that we should eat to, number one, protect the liver, and number two, to feed the gut. Indeed. Bottom line is that our food has been contaminated. So once upon a time, we ate something called real food. And real food is basically food that came out of the ground or animals that ate food that came out of the ground. And that was really all we had. In the last 50 years, ultra-processed food has taken over. Ultra-processed food has several features, but the two that are most important for our discussion today are too much sugar for palatability, too little fiber for shelf life. Pretty much all ultra-processed food is high sugar, low fiber. Real food was the opposite. Well, it turns out that high sugar is driving chronic metabolic disease, such as type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease, because sugar, the sweet stuff, the molecule we seek, the molecule that is addictive, turns out to be a mitochondrial toxin. It actually poisons the little energy powerhouses in each of our cells, mm. which burn the energy. Basically, that molecule, sugar, does the same thing to our mitochondria that alcohol does, because they are metabolized virtually identically. And so kids today are getting this diseases of alcohol without alcohol. Type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease used to be the disease of alcoholics. Now they're the disease of five-year-olds. So understanding this alteration, this paradigm shift in what's in the food has been absolutely essential. Now, turns out there is a way to mitigate the negative aspects of ultra-processed food. It's called fiber, but the fiber's been removed. Now, why is fiber important? Everybody thought fiber is what you threw in the garbage after you juiced the fruit. Turns out the fiber was the good part of the fruit because the fiber was food for your bacteria, the bacteria in your intestine, your intestinal microbiome. And it turns out when your microbiome is not fed, it feeds on you. It strips the mucin layer right off your intestinal epithelial cells, exposing it and putting you at risk for all sorts of inflammatory bowel diseases, irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, leaky gut, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, uh, which also then puts you at risk for systemic inflammation, metabolic syndrome, and food allergy, and autoimmune disease, all because of gut inflammation, all because of changes in the microbiome, all because of changes in our food, which could be mitigated if we had fiber in our diet, which we don't. 
So understanding these two pillars, too much sugar, too little fiber, is essential in terms of figuring out how to eat our way out of this mess. Mm -hmm. Rob, with that basis, let's move on to discuss the weight loss drugs like Ozempic, Wagovi, Monjoro. We all took note of Elon Musk's tweeting about his dramatic weight loss when he was using Wegovi. Yep. So what are these drugs, and should we be cautious? So I've known about these drugs for probably now oh, 20 years. There was a, uh, a precursor drug that was uh, being hailed as a diabetes adjunct uh, many years ago called exenatide or Bieta. And, you know, now we have the uh, new iterations, like you said, Ozempic, Wagovi, which are, by, based, by the way, the same drug, just a different dose. And there's even a new one, Manjaro, as you know, made by a different company. Bottom line is these drugs do cause weight loss. I, I agree with that. They cause a 16% weight loss over one year hmm. is true. And obviously, that's why they're big sellers. That's why everyone's talking about them. And that's why you're interviewing me about them. <laughs> because indeed, they actually do cause weight loss. And we haven't had a medicine, a drug, a pill that does that. We have tried for many decades now to find the right drug to do that. And lots of drugs have been taken off the market. For just that reason, you know, Fenfen was taken off the market, mm -hmm. Cybutramine or Meridia was taken off the market, Romanoband or Complia was never uh, approved here in the US, was taken off the European market for side effects. So there is a, a graveyard of obesity drugs that didn't work or caused enormous side effects. So everyone is welcoming. Ozempic, Wagovi, Manjaro with open arms for that reason. The question is, is that warranted? And the answer to that is, well, they do work. And so I'm not against them because some people need those medicines or they will die. Mm -hmm. Some people need those medicines to jumpstart a lifestyle intervention that could be successful. And so in the right hands and for the right patient and in the right venue, I'm for them. Mm -hmm. The question is, who is that right patient? What is the right venue? And whose hands should they be in? That's the question. And we haven't answered that question yet. That's still up in the air. So, maybe, maybe taking a stab at it, you said the right patient. Give us a profile of the right patient. And is, is this a drug that you would only recommend for adults? Would it have application for children? Just curious to, to know who the, the right people might be for this intervention. Indeed. Uh, that is an excellent question. The, what we do know is that it does work in children. It has, there's a clinical trial that has shown that it actually is effective in children. The question is, why does it work? It works because it slows gastric emptying. It slows the stomach from working mm -hmm. and moving. And so what that does is that basically not just gives you a feeling of fullness, but it gives you a feeling of nausea hmm. because you can't move anything through. And so one of the biggest side effects of Ozempic and Mogovi is nausea, vomiting, ultimately pancreatitis, 
one third of the patients who start on Ozempic or Wagovi actually come off it because of side effects. In fact, just last week, the FDA added a warning to the Ozempic label about what's known as gastroparesis, gastrostomach parasis paralysis, not moving. Stomach not moving. That's exactly right. And not only that, but it actually lasts a long time, possibly hmm. permanently. We don't know yet. But this is not just while you're taking the medicine. This may go on for much longer than that. And so many people who've gone on Ozempic and Wagovi have actually gone off it because of the side effects. So let, let me say that while the drug does, the drugs do work, and I am cognizant of that, and I'm not against them per se, there are three reasons to be very, very worried and cautious about this. One is the physiological effects of Ozempic. Mm -hmm. Two are the side effects of Ozempic. And third are the economic effects of Ozempic. So what do I mean by the physiological effects? Number one, the reason that this medicine works is because it reduces gastric emptying. Therefore, people can't eat as much. Mm -hmm. You would say that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. People can't eat as much. Okay. Well, when you look at the weight loss from Ozempic and Wagovi, turns out that you lose equal amounts of fat and muscle. You want to lose fat. You don't want to lose muscle. Mm -hmm. And ask any little old lady who breaks her hip if she wishes she had a little bit more muscle. And it has been shown that muscle mass predicts longevity. So if you're losing both fat and muscle, is that a good trade? That's the first question. Can I jump in there with a question? When a patient is prescribed Ozempic or Wagovi, are they subject to a new diet? Are they, or do they simply, I'm, I assume they're not continuing with the, the, the diet they had before and bad habits that they had before. Do these weight reduction drugs go hand in hand with a radical change in their diet? Well, they tend to eat less, but I haven't yet heard that anybody's been put on a, an actual diet diet. Hmm. Ultimately, the question is, if you lose 16% of your body weight with the medicine and you can lose 29% of your weight just by getting your sugar consumption down to USDA guidelines. And if everyone in America who qualified for Ozempic got it, it would cost America $2.1 trillion. Hmm. And if we just got our sugar consumption down to USD guidelines, we would save $3 trillion, a $5.1 trillion swing per year, which do you think makes more sense? Mm -hmm. So we have the physiologic effects of muscle and fat loss. We have the side effects of nausea, vomiting, pancreatitis, and gastroparesis. And we have the economic effects of throwing $2.1 trillion at a problem that could be solved by fixing our food. 
Which do you think makes more sense? Well, of course, the fixing the food makes makes most sense. Let's let's move on to that for a moment. In your book, Meta- Metabolical, you referenced. I, I thought it was a terrific example. You you talked about the uh, Nova class one through four. You used the example of the apple. And could you share that with our listeners, just the simple apple, then the sliced apple, then going to the juice, et cetera? Just walk them through that so that our listeners really get a sense of how a food as pure and and good as apple can be turned into an ultra-processed food through these, these nefarious steps. Absolutely. So the thing you need to understand is that 73% of the items in the American grocery store are ultra-processed. That means that you can't make those in your kitchen at home. That's what it means. If you're, if it's ultra processed, it means standard cooking and process and pro- processing at home techniques won't work, whether it's because of extrusion or because of packaging or because of um, pasteurizing and heating, whatever it is, you can't do it at home. Mm-hmm. Turns out that those ultra processed foods are what are driving all the chronic metabolic disease that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. Mm -hmm. The way we know that is because my colleague and friend, Dr. Carlos Montero, who is a public health expert at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, developed a classification system for food processing. Instead of looking at what's in the food, he looks at what's been done to the food. Mm -hmm. Now, that system is called the NOVA system just means new it's a new system and there are four classes of food in the grocery store so nova class one would be an apple picked off a tree Mm -hmm. produce section nova class two would be apple slices de-stemmed de-seeded de-skinned nova class three would be applesauce macerated cooked possibly emulsifiers added possibly extra sugar added and Nova Class 4 would be a McDonald's apple pie. <laughs> so the question is, when you get to the McDonald's apple pie, is that even recognizable as apple? Mm-hmm. And so the question is, if you are eating a McDonald's apple pie, are you eating an apple? And the answer is not even remotely. In fact, it is only that Nova Class 4 grouping, which has been associated with chronic metabolic disease worldwide. And many countries have looked at this now. The problem is that 73% of the items in the American grocery store and 67% of the added sugar in our diet. So this is what is driving chronic metabolic disease. Now, currently, those ultra-processed foods are subsidized by the U.S. government. And the reason is because that's what the food industry wants. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We subsidize really four things, corn, wheat, soy, sugar, all of which are bad for us, all of which are toxins in their own right. And because of that, we are suffering because American government has made those items cheap. And that's why the food industry can sell them at lower prices, not because the foods themselves are cheap, but because the subsidies make them cheap. So this requires a rethink at at every level. It requires rethink at the medical level, at the molecular level, at the food level, at the uh, provider level, at the 
uh, public health level, at the industry level, and finally at the political slash federal level in order to be able to mitigate these metabolic risks in a meaningful way. And that's what we're trying to do. It's mm-hmm. a heavy lift. It, it is. It is indeed. Our, let's come back to the political aspect of this. It would seem to me that with the evidence that you've presented in Metabolical and that you've shared with our listeners this afternoon, it would seem to me that there's a a compelling case, I I would almost say an open and shut case, for what you're telling us. Yet, I fail to hear our political leaders speaking up on this or certainly speaking up at at a higher level. Where do we stand in terms of getting the kind of reforms and the kind of regulatory reforms that would go some way to reduce this reliance on ultra processed foods? Well, that's a very good question. And thus far, it has gone nowhere. The food industry is very powerful and exerts an enormous influence over Congress. You know, this would mean uh, major changes to the farm bill. And, you know, this has been brought up since 2008 and has never passed. So we're still stuck in the same morass that we always have been. However, every year, more and more data become available. More and more clinicians are being are convinced of those uh, data and the importance and the need to fix this problem. We now have the doctors and the dentists on board. Uh, We're still working on the dietitians. They have not yet come on board, but I speak to a lot of dietary groups. I'm going to be speaking to one next week, in fact. Ultimately, what we need are the politicians to come on board. Now, there are a few in Congress. I won't mention their names because they don't need any notoriety at the moment, but there are a few people who get it. And we're working to try to move that forward. And it's a, as you, as I said, it's a heavy lift, but ultimately there have to be more votes than dollars. That has yet to come. What about in other countries? Uh, let's start with the EU, because I, I tend to think of the EU and perhaps having uh, more progressive food regulations than we have here in the United States or Japan, for instance. Can we look to other countries like such as those in the EU or Japan for for some some leadership here? The one place that has demonstrated a a little bit of leadership on this uh, subject is Chile. They have actually banned marketing of junk food to children. Mm Mm-hmm which I think is a you know enormous uh, step forward. The rest of the EU has not yet come around to this, but the concept of ultra-processing and its relationship to disease is now a big thing, and you are starting to see things like soda taxes, like, for instance, in Britain. Other countries are also contemplating that. There are now 28 countries around the world with soda or sugar taxes because they recognize that sugar is a mitochondrial toxin. So we have to reduce consumption. Now, how do you do that? There's something called the iron law of public health. And it goes like this. Reducing availability of a substance reduces consumption, which reduces health harms. So we have to reduce availability of those things that hurt us. Well, sugar hurts us. So how do you reduce availability of sugar? Well, you can reduce the effective availability by a tax. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem, of course, is that people don't like taxes. (laughs) If you tax something, then people want something else in return. Mm -hmm. 
and otherwise they feel like it's regressive especially against the poor so we are working on that right now without naming names and without telling you where uh we are working on trying to get soda off food stamps you know known as snap mm. supplementary supplemental nutrition assistance program mm -hmm. so this is in process this is going on right now and we'll see how it goes mm -hmm. but you know the populace needs input and so this has to be something that people will agree to because they see the value and you know if you think a calorie is a calorie then you don't see the value mm -hmm. so we have to teach we have to educate as we try to implement meat and fish of course when we go into the supermarket you know, we're buying fresh meat or fresh fish. But again, in your book, you caution us about meat and fish and antibiotics, for instance. Talk to us about the industrialization of the meat supply and the fish supply and what needs to be done to correct that. Well, that's a complicated one. Let's talk about the meat supply first. As you know, most of our meat is grown now on CAFOs which stands for concentrated animal feeding operations. In other words, um, stalls and, and pens in Kansas, mostly. Corn's in Iowa. The cows are in Kansas. We ship the corn from Iowa to Kansas to feed the cows. The cows then get fat and we slaughter them. Have you ever seen uh, meat from another country? Have you ever seen meat from Argentina mm -hmm. or from Italy or from New Zealand? It's pink. It's homogeneous, you know, it's basically the same color throughout. Mm -hmm. It is a little tougher than ours, but it is absolutely delicious. That's because those animals were raised on grass. Mm -hmm. That's what cows are supposed to eat because that's why they have four stomachs, okay? The rumination is to take advantage of that because food for cows is grass. Mm -hmm. Well, everywhere except America, where the food for cows is corn. Fact of the matter is corn is nutrient deficient. The animals get the corn from Iowa and they are nutrient deficient. They end up with various infectious diseases, which then have to be stamped out by the cattlemen. And the way they do that is with antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is the antibiotics are sterilizing the gut of the animal, except for those things that won't die from those antibiotics which happen to be the methane-producing organisms, the methanogens. And so today's cow generates six times the methane than a cow in 1968 did. Hmm. So even though there are fewer cows, because meat sales have actually gone down, there's five times the amount of methane coming from those cows. Mm -hmm. well, guess what? There's five times the amount of methane coming from us, too, because we're eating the meat with the antibiotics in them. Now, how smart do you think that is? In addition, corn is very high in three amino acids. Now, you need amino acids because you need protein, because, you know, you need to grow. You need to make muscle, agreed. And these three amino acids called leucine, isoleucine, valine, these are branched chain amino acids. They're necessary if you're building muscle. And that's why bodybuilders who are building muscle take scoops of protein powder and add it to their smoothies to increase their branch chain amino acid consumption. And if you're a bodybuilder, that sort of makes sense. 
But what if you're not a bodybuilder? What if you're a mere mortal like me and you eat excess branch chain amino acids because you love steak? What happens to that extra isoleucine, valine leucine? What happens to that? Answer, it goes to the liver. The liver can't store it because the only place to store it is muscle and you're not building muscle. So what does it do? It takes the amino group off. Now you have a branch chain organic acid and then it dumps it into the mitochondrial tricarboxylic acid or Krebs cycle, overwhelms it, which then throws off the excess uh, as citrate. And then that citrate drives a process in the liver called de novo lipogenesis, new fat making. So you've basically turned amino acids into fat in the liver. And that's what makes the liver sick, mm. the fat in the liver. Now, fructose does it. Branched-chain amino acids do it. Alcohol does it. Trans fats do it. Processed food. So bottom line, we have a meat problem because not because of the cows, but because of what we did to the cows. Mm-hmm. Now, fish is also a problem because fish used to eat algae. Now fish eat corn and corn is very high in omega-6s and omega-6s are pro-inflammatory and corn is very low in omega-3s and omega-3s are anti-inflammatory. Everyone knows that fish is brain food because fish has omega-3s. Well, unfortunately, farmed fish do not. Hmm. Farmed fish are pro-inflammatory, not anti-inflammatory. Farmed fish contribute to Alzheimer's disease. Wild fish contribute to prevention of Alzheimer's disease. But what's available to most of the country that don't live on the coasts? So this also is a problem. So we have several problems with our food supply. We have problems in terms of our sugar consumption and our fiber consumption. We have problems in terms of our uh, meat consumption, our fish consumption. We have problems in terms of emulsifiers. We have problems in terms of pesticides that activate specific detoxification pathways within the cell that are bad for us. There are all sorts of things that are a problem because of ultra-processed food. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? One other point that jumped out at me in your book was the link between ultra-processed food and mental health. Could you talk to us about that? Because that's revelatory. You just referenced the increase in Alzheimer's and dementia that we're seeing. But could you talk to me about ultra-processed foods and mental health? In particular, you spoke about the bipolarity and how diet can, how a proper diet can have a positive impact on bipolarity. So... We don't understand this completely yet. We do know that ultra-processed food consumption is associated with depression. And one of the studies just came out last week by a group uh, in Washington and New York City called Sapien Labs, and they published their uh, information online. And they looked at 227,000 people around the world, taking into account all the potential confounders, race, obesity, aging, poverty, urbanization. And even when you factored all of those things into account, ultra-processed food was a primary driver of depression and exercise was not able to mitigate it. Hmm. 
So that's just one study. There are many others. In addition, omega-3 deficiency is associated with depression as well. So ultra-processed food, omega-3s, sugar, insulin resistance. Insulin resistance is a primary driver of depression because insulin blocks trophic factors in the brain. And fructose blocks certain neurotransmitters from forming that are necessary for to alleviate depression. So glutamate to GABA. Glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. The enzyme that converts glutamate to GABA is inhibited by fructose. Mm-hmm. So the more fructose you consume, the more glutamate, which is neurotoxic, the less GABA, which is neuroprotective. So it shouldn't at all be surprising that our food has effects on our mental health. The point is that it's ultra-processed food that is driving our mental health pandemic. Well, Rob, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts about these new options like Ozempic, Wagovi, and Manjuro that are now available to address obesity? Uh, Like I said earlier, it is good that these medicines exist. The problem is they're now being abused. The people who need them most can't even get them because Hollywood's got them all. Hollywood's not the ones who need it. So this continues to be a problem. Uh, Obviously, if it's $1,300 a month, which it is right now, only Hollywood can afford it. Mm -hmm. So from an equity standpoint, from a social justice standpoint, and most importantly, from a side effects and economic standpoint, you know, we need to deal with this issue. The question is, is this issue going to be responsive to medicine? And my argument is that I actually think that because these medicines are here, it's going to actually take take our eye off the ball. Yes. It's going to make us think, you know, that we can solve this with a pill when we can't. Bottom line is there are no medicines that affect the mitochondria. There are no medicines that fix mitochondrial dysfunction. There are no medicines that can get to the mitochondria. The only thing that gets to the mitochondria is food, good food. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, bad food gets to the mitochondria and poisons it. So people talk about food as medicine. Yes, food can be medicine, but food can also be poison. Mm-hmm. The question is, how do you know which is which? And the answer is easy. If it was real food, it worked for hundreds of thousands of years. If it's processed food, we've very clearly demonstrated in the last 50, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Rob, where can our listeners buy a copy of your latest book, Metabolical. <laughs> yes. The uh, tagline The tagline is the lure and the lies of processed food, nutrition, and modern medicine. You can buy it at your local bookstore. I am all for local bookstores. Bookstores are happiness. Bookstores are where you go to learn. Okay. I please frequent your local bookstore. If you don't have a local bookstore or if they're out of it, and they shouldn't be out of it, but if they are, then, you know, there's Amazon and Barnes and Noble and, you know, whatever, and uh, Kubo and whatever other online booksellers you can find. But it's very available. The publisher has told me that this book has continued to have legs and that it is continuing to sell virtually at the same rate as when it came out, which even though it's two and a half years later is really remarkable. So I'm very thankful for that. Very impressive. And thank you for all the great work that you've done, the research work that you've done. And Rob, how can our listeners follow you? I am easy to find. RobertLustig.com. 
uh, metabolical.com. I am the chief medical officer of four companies. You are welcome to find online. I am a paid advisor to six others. One that uh, your uh, audience might be very interested in is Levels Health, where we basically teach people what food does to their health. And uh, very proud of that one. It's done extraordinarily well. Bottom line, I'm, I'm easy to find. I'm, I can be found in the bookstore. I can be found online in journals. I can be found online with a blog, LinkedIn, and pretty much anywhere you want to look. Rob, do you have an, an X handle? An X handle. Uh, I, Twitter. Oh, I went off Twitter because of Elon. Ah. So... I actually don't have an X handle. Used to. This is my protest. I see. Well, Rob, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Very enlightening and really encourage our listeners to read your book, Metabolical. But most importantly, I think you've given us a, a very fair and objective view of these drugs like Ozempic, Wagovi, Monjuro, which of course are being billed as, as modern day miracles. But I think you've, your analysis and your comments are rooted in practicality and really appreciate your, your input on that today. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 458. Listen to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, 18 platforms in total, with listeners in 60 countries. Feedspot has recently recognized us as a top 25 California news podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast, with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. 